This past week on VeloNews.com, we had some great stories about Australian cyclists for our Aussie week, including some great stuff for our Active Pass and VeloNews Pass subscribers on the Australian diaspora in Europe and how these riders help the new generation come up. You can read these stories and others by going to VeloNews.com forward slash active pass and signing up for either velo news pass or active pass right now we have a great deal on both velo news pass you can get a full year for 41 dollars and 65 cents or a full year of active pass for 84 dollars and 15 cents again velo news pass includes the digital subscription to velo a print subscription to velo news magazine industry deals from some cool industry partners much much more active pass the list is very long includes both of those things plus uh, access to live events, coaching help from today's plan, bunch of cool stuff. You can learn more about it by going to velonews.com forward slash active pass. And again, read all of our great stories about the Australians. Okay, let's get on with today's podcast. Welcome back to the Velo News Podcast. Fred Dreyer coming to you on a chilly, frigid Tuesday morning here in Boulder, Colorado. Finally, after a few weeks of drought, we're getting the snow that uh, all the skiers have been craving. Be safe out there, everyone. I know we want to indulge in our outdoor sports and our skiing this year, but, you know, there's COVID going on. We don't want to take a hospital bed. Don't break your leg. Uh, be safe as you indulge in your outdoor, outdoor activities. Uh, we have a great episode coming up this week. Um, two, three big stories that we need to get to. Um, the second half of the show, we're going to be talking all about the decision by NBC to shut down NBC Sports Network. That, of course, is the cable broadcaster that brings us the Tour de France to television. And uh, I have a conversation with journalist John Arand of the Sports Business Daily Sports Business Journal about why NBC is shutting down NBC Sports Network and what it means for American cycling fans who still want to be able to watch the, the Tour de France on television. Um, before we get to that, though, we have some big stories going on in the world of Dutch cycling. Um, Dylan Gronewagen the sprinter who is currently sitting out a band for a crash that he was involved in at the Tour of Poland, uh, gave an interview saying that he received death threats after the crash and in the wake of uh, the, you know, the controversy. Uh, we're going to talk about that. And then we have to get to the big, big story of the week, which is that Tom Dumoulin, the 2017 Giro d'Italia winner, has announced that he is stepping away from cycling entirely um, and that the pressures of the sport have gotten to him and he, and he just needs a break from cycling. This, of course, came out last week um, at Yumbo Visma's training camp. Dumoulin announcing that he's stepping away from the sport entirely at the age of 30. That's a huge story. And there are so many angles that I have so many questions I have about it. And to help us understand what's going on with these two Dutch cycling stories, I'm really pleased to welcome um, a guest on this week's podcast. It's Raymond Kirkhoffs. Raymond is a veteran Dutch journalist. He's the head reporter for Wielerflitz.nl. And if you're a serious cycling fan, I suggest you bookmark Wielerflitz.nl because they are way ahead of the game when it comes not just to Dutch cycling, but a lot of cycling news out there. And Raymond's also president of the Association uh, of International Cycling Journalists. Raymond joins us from his home in uh, outside of Maastricht. Raymond, thanks for coming on the podcast. Yes, I'm pleased to, to be with you in Colorado. And of course, we also have Andrew Hood. Andrew Hood, not, no, uh, 
no chopped liver himself. Andy, what's going on in the man cave? Yeah, indeed. Here we are. Uh, big news this week. It's, it's good to have Raymond uh, on the podcast. Uh, Monceau president, you know, he, he runs the AIAGC, which is kind of the cyclist journalist group and uh, doing a lot of advocacy work for journalists. You know, big issue last year was access and the AIJC was right there trying to make sure during this bubble and during all the uh, uh, restrictions that were introduced during uh, the racing last year that we could get some access. What little we could, we certainly could thank uh, the AIJC and the effort by Raymond and the other members of the board for getting that for us. Raymond, fighting for our rights. Thank you so much. All right, guys, let's get to it. This Tom Dumoulin story is breaking my brain. Um, Friday, Yumbo Visma puts out these videos from its team camp with all its riders talking about their ambitions for the year. And Tom Dumoulin is going to have co-leadership with Primoz Roglic at the Tour de France, which makes sense. Um, And then Saturday, they put out this video and Dumoulin goes on Twitter to announce that he's stepping away from the sport entirely. Raymond, first of all, how did you greet this news? And what was your impression on why it came out the way it did? I was absolutely surprised. Not that the fact that he was doubting about this because we knew already for years that he was not the person who would stay until uh, 40 years like uh, Alejandro Valverde in cycling. But yeah, the moment was was, was really a surprise. Uh, I got a phone call about it on Friday evening. And if I look back and I spoke with a lot of people on Tuesday, uh, uh, Tom uh, started to doubt about this. Uh, it was uh, the funeral that day of his grandmother. Uh, which whom he had a really good relation, and he had to watch that funeral uh, with a with a video conf- uh, uh, in a video call, and then he saw all his family, and he could not support his family, and I think that was the last last thing he needed to switch, and that that changed the way he was thinking already for for years. I think that was the moment. I am sitting here in Spain, not helping my family, not supporting my family. Uh, that he thought, uh, what the fuck am I doing in, in this world where I am not happy? And then on Tuesday evening, he already called with some people talking about this. And then on Friday, he had the courage to ask uh, for five people of the team, Richard Plugger, uh, the general manager, uh, Marijn Zeeman, the sportive leader of Jumbo Visma, Major Heibo, the trainer, and Peter Verstappen, the doctor, to have a meeting. And in that meeting, uh, it was directly clear that he won a break for for some time, and maybe for always. What what really stands out to me about this story was, you know, that ten hour or twelve hour time in between when the videos and announcement go out about you know Tom Dumoulin's ambitions for the year, and then when you know, he makes this decision that he wants to step away. And so, you know, knowing that there was this funeral and this family situation that he felt like he couldn't be a part of, I, I feel like helps clear it up on my end. I mean, Hoodie, what was your reaction and perspective when you saw this, you know, big reversal from Dumoulin and this news come out, you know, just a short period after Yumbo puts out its like plans for Dumoulin for 2021? Yeah, it certainly caught me by surprise as well, just, just especially in light of this whole uh, PR rollout that they had on that Friday. And I know, I know there was some pushback among some of our uh, cycling colleagues about this kind of tendency of teams packaging their, their press uh, presentations and they're sending out these uh, kind of uh, uh, PR video in- interviews and limiting access to journalists. That's another issue we could perhaps talk to about uh, at another moment, but, uh, and then have, and then the very next day to have 
again with the video release, having uh, Dumoulin explain kind of a little bit why he was leaving the sport. It was definitely a flabbergasted by the whole thing. My big question was, was uh, perhaps Raymond has some insight on this. You know, was it a question more that he was simply just burned out? Or was, you know, does he still have nagging issues with his knee? You know, last year we saw him at, at, you know, being fairly consistent, but not quite all the way back in 2020. How big of an issue is it physically for Tom, Boone, uh, Tom uh, Dublin, do you think? No, I think it's not a physical uh, problem anymore. Uh, he did not a great season last year, but he had a good season. Eh? If, if you look to the Tour de France, we saw uh, in the documentary from Jumbo Vismo, uh, Code Yellow, uh, that he had a problem... Uh, uh, on a sitting on a saddle, uh, if you then look back, he was second in after uh Tadej Pogacar in the last time trial to La Planche de Belfire, and he became seventh in the Tour de France. But absolutely, that second place in the time trial on the last Saturday that that says that he has a good recovery, that he has done a good Tour de France. That was for me a signal that he was coming back to, to, to the top, and 2020 would be a year that after being more than a year without having competition, that he needed 2020 to come back on his level. So uh, now he really was burned out. And if we look back, uh, at the the end of the Tour de France at the Champs-Élysées, the Dutch uh, national television NOS had an interview with him and they didn't ask anything about about it. And then he certainly said, yes, in, in April, I really was thinking and really close with stopping with cycling. And if I look back, why did he say that? Because nobody asked him. And I think maybe he already wanted to give a signal from, this is, for me, this is not everything. I'm, I'm really thinking about it. And perhaps the team, perhaps uh, his environment, because I don't know if you, did you see the, the documentary that, that you saw him crying after the Perisura stage? For me, it was unbelievable that a team gave those images free yeah? because that was not good for, for the image of Tom Dumoulin. And, and maybe that was also a little step that makes him closer to, to stop his career. Raymond, I'm right there with you, man. I watched that documentary and there were parts of me with both Dumoulin and a bit with Roglic where I'm like, wow, they they let this get out there. I mean, Dumoulin, so much of the documentary focuses on him because he's Dutch, because he's the Dutch leader and because he's just more, I don't know, he's more talkative than... Uh, Roglic is, but you know we see him. And one part, he's having to apologize to the team for having kind of an outburst over the team radios early in one stage. Then we see him crying. You know he has this saddle sore, and after the Parasort stage, it's very obvious he's not going to be the team's leader for the Tour de France. And then also after the time trial, we see him kind of almost doubting Pogacar's victory or sort of shaking his head at it. And I w- I was wondering like, wow, you know. What is this guy's relationship like with the team management? I mean, this is a very successful team. I'm sure they put a lot of pressure on their athletes. But also, yeah, I was wondering if them agreeing to put this documentary out there that really laid bare some of his emotion may have had an impact on his public perception in the Netherlands or how he views his public perception in the Netherlands. Do you have any sense around either of those points? The documentary was absolutely not good for his image. You saw some people, he is weak, he is not strong enough to, to, to go to the top. And of course, he has heard that uh, that sounds also. But if, if, if you know, go look back uh, the last days, Tom de Molay was in the Netherlands, absolutely uh, every sport page, uh, every sport uh, TV program uh, was talking about it. And and everybody said it's brave that he took this decision. And 
I, I have read a lot of stories and became thinking and thinking more about it. And we are living in a total different world uh, from cycling now. If, if we go back to the EPO years, with the, with the doping years, if you wanted to win the Tour de Force, you had to take EPO, you had to do blood or transfusions, otherwise it was not possible. And I think now we are in the part of cycling that we are in the, in the, in the age of the marginal gains. And it started with Team Sky. You had to do everything perfect. You had to live more than 100% you have to be a cyclist. But every day what you eat, it's important. You have to go on altitude stage for weeks. In, in the most little detail, the details, you got to be a professional. It, it looks like cycling has changed. Human from, from, from cyclists were becoming uh, not anymore human beings, but robots, robocops. And not everybody can handle this life. And Tom Dumoulin is a very intelligent person. Uh, if you look to his family, uh, everybody did the university. So when he grew up, it were not the, his heroes were not sports uh, heroes, but he was looking to doctors who saved uh, lives of people. So he had a total different mind. And then to live in a life that you live not for 90% as a pro cyclist, but with the marginal gains for 100%, I think that was a little bit maybe too much for him. And he's not the only one. Eh? We saw the same with Kittel. We saw if you go to the team Sunweb, people leave that team because in that team, there are so many rules how to live like a professional. And maybe that is also a reason. And we got to think that those Robocops, which can win the two to fours, are also human beings. And we like to, uh, we must know and handle them like human beings. Yeah, that's an interesting observation. And just contrasting with that, during the Ipo era, it was all about the omerta and everything was behind closed doors. And now these guys live with their lives as an open book and, and their own teams are putting out these pretty startling images. You know, we also saw with Movistar did that uh, video last year, the documentary on the Netflix. And it just kind of showed all the warts and all of even their own incompetency within the team of unorganized, you know, the race. And so it's, and plus with social media, just constantly these guys are getting criticized and ridiculed and, and supported. It's been quite encouraging to see how social media has kind of gotten behind Dumoulin and, and people are encouraging him. Whereas uh, I think in the past, the cycling, you're exactly right, Raymond, was just a completely different sport. And just the, even the way the, the, the psychological aspects of the sport have changed a lot with it over, over the past uh, generation or so. I mean, I see that even in mainstream American sports where, you know, in the 80s and 90s, when I really came out as a, as a sports fan, there was so much criticism towards the athletes, especially around like pay disputes. If they ever went on strike or whatever, it was like, oh, these greedy athletes, you know, they're they're sitting down because they they're, they already get paid millions of dollars. Ugh. And now I think it's come around to the fact that it's like, well, you know, the owners are actually making a lot of the money. And so the athletes want a share of what's theirs. And I see this as a step further. And I see this what's going on in cycling as part of this movement in sports fandom um, that's taken years and decades to 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 come across, which Raymond, as you said, it's to see these cyclists as human beings, as not just machines. Um, we cheer for them and they we want them to win and we want them to have the best performance possible. But at some point we have to realize that the sacrifices and the mental emotional fatigue required to be at that top level for years and years and years um, yeah, it just requires a lifestyle that is completely abnormal, like doesn't represent any doesn't doesn't reflect anything we would be used to. And I think of it through the lens of what does it mean for the young guys coming up, you know, like the Pogachars and the Bernals and the whatever, like, 
are they going to be able to hold on to that for 10 years, 12 years? Like it's one thing coming up and being full of beans and being excited and being able to live that monastic lifestyle and win. But like, do you have 10 years worth of that in you? Um, I talked about that with Garrett Thomas because, you know, when he he was talking about when he first came into the sport, ah, he sucked and he was just trying to finish the Tour de France, let alone he never thought he'd win it. And it was sort of over the years and over the decades, he adopted this lifestyle and he adopted the little marginal gains here and there that allowed him to get to that point. But, you know, for someone who's trying to do that year after year for decades, for a decade, I, I, I don't know. Um the, the whole Dumoulin story brings up a lot of interesting questions around cycling in general and what it means to be a cyclist. Yeah, I got a question for Raymond. Uh, do you have any inside scoop on how long he actually might stay away? It's just kind of left right now as an open book, but have you heard anything on if he's planning on coming back this year or is it just kind of an indefinite kind of a checkout? No, he still doesn't know. He uh, wants to have a break with no time uh, lap on it and Personal, I think the chance is really small that he's coming back because I made in December 2019 a long interview. I visited him at a home and we were sitting at his uh, ki- uh, kitchen table. And then he said, yeah, I'm still hungry. I was away for, for almost six months with uh, the knee problems and I can start to my looking out for, for the new team, the first training camp. And I feel that uh, I have to do something with my talent and I'm really hungry to get back in competition and if we look now back then three four months later he was still doubting about his career we know now he even knows that that feeling about december 2019 that changed in three months so i think not it's not going fast that his mind is going to change now and that he's going to of course he's going to miss cycling but he knows what it means to have the pressure he doesn't like to be a champion yeah because I can remember when he won the Giro d'Italia in 2017, he came at home and I think there were two or three journalists standing before his house and he became angry and he didn't go to uh, to his house back. He put on Twitter for just for, uh, for an hour, then he put it away, a tweet and fuck off from my home. And if you just has won the Giro d'Italia to have that reaction, it's, it's, it's not normal. Then, you know, he was not a typical cyclist. He... He always said uh, he wanted to become a doctor and he uh, he was trying to get to the university, but they allowed only 100 uh, students that year and he was not one of those 100. And that was the reason why he became cyclist. Then he said, I'm going to do uh, everything that year for cycling and then I'm going to try again to become a doctor. But then his results of a cyclist were so good that he decided to go on as a cyclist. But in his mind, just like I said before, a doctor who save lives from people is for him a bigger hero than himself with winning the Giro d'Italia. So he has a total different look. But then you said, Frederick, about the young generation, about Remco, uh, Evenepoel, uh, Bernal. We, we saw already, I think last year, a little bit of burnout from Egan Bernal. Eh? Uh, we know now that he moved away uh, to, to, to a part from Bogota in a new house with rich people around him. He became a star. And then it becomes more and more difficult because the level in cycling is so high that you have to live with those marginal gains 24 hours in a day uh, as a cyclist. And for young guys, that's really difficult. And maybe we have to conclude also that, that people like Mathieu van der Poel and Wout van Aert, who are doing cycling cross, who are doing uh, the road, that those are machines, that they can that to, to, to do all the year on a level 
being so high and always wanted to win that they are exceptional. But can they do that for 10 years? I'm doubting about that. Raymond, what do you think this means for Jumbo Visma going forward? I mean, um, how do you see this impacting the team, both from a performance standpoint, but also from like a into the team personality standpoint and, you know, uh, how they will view like their star rider walking away. I- I'm really curious what impact this is going to have on Jumbo Visma. It's difficult to say. I, I think they also said that they were surprised eh, that uh, Tom uh, went away uh, half of the training camp in uh, in Alicante. So, yeah, I think, of course, if, if you're a team from that uh, level, you're going to look back. Well, what happened with Dumoulin? How can we uh, do things better? Did we do something wrong? But you have to look from person to person because if we look to a machine, <laughs> Primoz Roglic is a machine also. Eh? That's, but Primoz Roglic is also total different. And uh, a beautiful example. This was in Alicante. Was, last week was the first training camp of Jumbo Visma. And that means that they also have to do all the content things for all the sponsors. One rider was not there, Primoz Roglic. He said that there was a corona case near him at home. You can believe it or you cannot believe it. But I know that Roglic also hates to talk with journalists, to talk, to do things for sponsors. And that's a smart way to go not. Tom Dumoulin also hates that. Eh? He, he It's one of the most things that... He doesn't want to do. But he was there. And Wout van Aert and Tom de Moulin were the big stars when Roglic was not there. So everybody was coming to him to make content with him. Uh, movies for sponsors, photos for sponsors, interviews, everything he had to do. And he hates that. And if you, if you, if you look to it, yeah, a personality, everything is coming closer and closer than the one person who likes it. Uh, the other person who doesn't like to give interviews and doing that stuff. And some persons are so smart that they close the door. And also the thing, Tom Dumoulin didn't like to do interviews also with journalists. But every interview, when you talked with him, it were good interviews. Then he gave everything from himself. That was his mind. You could, you could yeah, you started an interview and sometimes you think, oh, he didn't like it so much to talk now. And then in 30 seconds, you saw his fire was going on and he, he had always a brilliant interview. In, in 10 minutes, you could, you could fill two, three uh, newspaper pages with talking with him because, Andy, you know, eh, his interviews were always from a high level. Uh, yeah, that's interesting how di- different writers handle the pressure in different ways. Um, because when, when Dumoulin joined Jumbo Visma, it seemed like it was the perfect marriage from the outside. You know, the big Dutch star coming to the to the rising Dutch team. Did uh, Was there any sort of, um, you know, when he came across, were the expectations were on the same page, do you think, when uh, between the team management and Dumoulin's personal ambitions? Yeah, I think so. I think uh, they started with three riders uh, for, for the Tour de France. Kruiswijk fall in the Dauphiné and uh, couldn't uh, start at the Tour de France. But I think at that moment, everybody already know that Primoz was uh, number one and that we saw in the Tour de France and Tom was number two. And yeah, he, he wrote like number two, only with his mistake on the Perisurde that he still was fifth at that moment at, 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 uh, at the GC. And he, he it was not necessary there to go riding on in front of the first group and suffering all his uh, his power for, for Primoz Roglic. He better could have stayed in front of the GC and then he would be more wordful for, for the team. But I think it was a good marriage, uh, I'm sure. 
But then also comes the question, we know he made around 3 million euro a year. Yeah, that also gives a pressure for him. He wanted, he know that Jumbo Visma did a lot to, to break his contract with Team Sunmap. They paid a lot. Then you want to give something back. And if it's not coming right, yeah, that, that puts more and more pressure. I, I also ask myself the question, what if today Pojacar didn't have a super day on La Planche de Belfie? Then Tom Dumoulin won the, T, the, 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 the TT. Roglic won the Tour de Force. I think then he never was doubting anymore to stop his career. Mm. So you see, there are also little things. Yeah? That's a big what if. Well, it's definitely a story we're going to continue to follow here on Vela News, and we're going to continue to read Raymond's uh, reporting about it. Raymond, changing gears here real quick. You sat down with Dylan Grunewagen uh, for an interview, or it was over the phone. But um, tell us, what's your sense of um, where Dylan Grunewagen is from a mental, emotional standpoint uh, about returning to cycling and how he views the uh, crash at the Tour of Poland last year? No, I visited him at home uh, on Christmas evening. Uh, uh, he wanted to do the interview very quick because he knew that there was a moment that he could become a father. Normally, it, uh, they thought uh, he would become a father in February, but his uh, girlfriend was already uh, went five times to hospital because they expected that the, that the child would be born much too early. And yeah, well, the, the the first image of of Good Dylan, I I thought he was strong that day. Uh, he asked himself two thousand times what happened that day, and he told me when he watched for the first time the images, he was surprised that he went so much to the right. And he can't explain that for himself. And he never wanted to hurt uh, Fabio or anyone else. And yeah, the, it was really, really clear. And I was surprised which hard time he had uh, after the incident in Poland. Yeah, I mean, it sounded like he had death threats. Um, and you know, Fabio is obviously, you know, in a tough way, he's making his recovery. Um, but I mean, how does he view uh, his future in the sport? Is he hungry to come back? Is he uh, hesitant to come back? What do you think the future holds for Grunewagen? Uh, he wants to come back, but he doesn't know what he can expect. He is still a little bit, uh, I think he's not afraid about the comments of other riders because he had a lot of reactions from uh, other sprinters. Also, from he said also from riders from the Koenig Quickstep, who uh, said it was not your 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 guilt. It was not your fault. Uh, we know that nobody will do this uh, to hurt anyone else. And if you see the program, uh, the team made made with him at all small races like. Uh, the Tour of Norway, uh, the ZLM Tour. Uh, I think this his first uh, World Tour race is Hamburg, and then he's doing the Bing Bang Tour, and that's it for 2021. So I, I think that he needs this year to come back, to find back the feeling to sprint. And yes, of course, this this is mental. Uh, not 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 easy what happened with him, and absolutely the stories with the death threats. It it it. it uh, it was terrible to hear that. Well, these are stories we're definitely going to keep following. And again, uh, listeners, if you are a serious cycling fan, you want to keep up on what's going on, not just in Dutch cycling. I suggest reading Raymond's stuff at wielerfleets.nl. Uh, great site to bookmark on your page. Raymond, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Great pleasure.
All right, my next guest on the podcast is John Orand. John is a reporter with the Sports Business Journal and Sports Business Daily. Uh, he's also someone I would call a global expert. Uh, and he is a global <laughs> expert when it comes to the U.S. sports media scene, companies like ESPN, Fox Sports, NBC, and uh, how they are choosing to broadcast or not broadcast sports. And uh, John, I have you on the podcast because last Friday, the cycling world, was uh, we received a hit in that uh, NBC Sports Network announced it's going to be shutting down at the end of the year. And of course, NBC Sports Network... This is the television home of the Tour de France, and I think cycling fans across the country are pulling their hair out. Uh, so I wanted to have you on the podcast to, I don't know, to 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 educate us, to maybe put our fears at risk, to put our fears at ease, or just to to get us give us a good idea of what the heck is going on. So it, the uh, main the main legs of the of the Tour de France uh, are going to be. Uh, moved over to USA Network almost certainly, uh, so that it's it's still going to be on on linear television. I think the problem that we're going you're going to run into is that uh, the, part of this move by NBC to shut down uh, NBC Sports Network is they really want to try to build up Peacock, which is the streaming service that NBC owns, and so a lot a lot of the content that you would have watched on NBC Sports Network is going to migrate to uh, to Peacock. And so in order to watch that, people are going to have to subscribe to Peacock, the, the streaming service, which costs about $5 a month. It's free for Cox and, and Comcast subscribers. And so that might sound great. Like, uh, well, we'll cut the cord and we'll go over the, the Peacock. But remember, they're still going to have the main rate, the, the main races and the finish and probably the start of the, the Tour de France. That's still going to be on a cable channel. It's still going to be on USA. So, it, so it's not like you uh, people, racing fans can cut the cord and get Peacock. You're going to have to continue to have the cord and subscribe to Peacock if you, if you want to see everything. So, John, you study this stuff for a living, and I'm really curious. What are the like the big macroeconomic factors behind this move? Like, NBC is getting rid of NBC Sports Network. What are the big forces that have led to this decision? Well, it's a whole. Everybody's looking at the future of television and and the future of video, and and you you see, take a look at Disney. They've made a huge bet on streaming, uh, and so you know they're right now taking big movies and and they're putting it on their streaming service at the same time that they're putting it in movie theaters. You know, because they feel like you know that that's that's where the the future is going. They're taking a lot of content off of ESPN and they're uh, they're they're putting it on ESPN plus and they're 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 really spending a lot of money to seed content for Disney plus over there. So you have media companies like Comcast or NBC which which owns NBCSN and they're taking a look at what's going what, what uh, what's going to happen with the future of video and everybody knows it's going to go to streaming but they still make a ton of money on uh, traditional cable um uh, operations. So you, the the college football playoff, the big events, Monday Night Football, you have to get cable and you have to watch that via ESPN. Well, NBC decided that it wants to have – it has a, something called uh, USA Network, which is generally entertainment programming. Well, most people are watching their entertainment programming now on Netflix and and uh, you know any any number of streaming services. Few people are going to USA to watch that. The ratings are still pretty good, but it, it's not as critical a, a channel now. And so NBC wants to put more live sports on USA to make it more of a critical channel, a la something like TNT, you know, which has sports and, and entertainment. And then it wants, it wants to take other content and it wants to put it on um, 
uh, Peacock, the streaming service as well. And so this is sort of the way forward uh, until we see the big questions are the, uh, every uh, one of the big trends is cord cutting. And the big question is, how far down will the uh, cable subscribers go? And, and so nobody knows the answer to that. And this is a way that Disney and, and uh, NBC and uh, CBS as well are all sort of hedging their bets and, and, and waiting to see how the media landscape is going to shake out. It's funny because it reminds me of a conversation that you and I had and other people in the sports business had like 10 years ago. So uh, John and I were actually colleagues 10 years ago when I worked for Sports Business Journal, Sports Business Daily. And at the time, you know, the concept of cord cutting and what these big networks were going to do in the future was like just starting to happen. I remember we'd have these symposiums and these muckety mucks from these cable companies would get asked about cord cutting and oh we're not really worried about it and i came from the cycling space which like cycling fans forever have been used to being like underserved by the networks and so we'd have to watch all our stuff streaming and hunt around for these pirate feeds to watch even the biggest races and i was always like you know for obscure sports fans like myself we're already used to cord cutting and like finding our sports in streaming uh, situations and you know there was the sentiment that no one's ever going to want to stream NFL football or the NBA and I think it's just really interesting that 10 years on there is the potential that even big properties like the NFL and the NBA are, are going to go to streaming only and I mean it just seems like this move is sort of born out of something that's been going on for the last you know multiple years up to a decade yeah, totally. And and I think that, you know, like I said, entertainment programming, look, I, I have a, a wife and kids. I, I can't think of the last time they, they watched linear television for entertainment. I mean, they're, they're watching Apple TV or Netflix or Amazon Prime or, you know, any one of these uh, channels. They're not watching watching that on TV. The only thing that's keeping keep, keeping us plugged into cable is live sports, you know, because if, if, if you're a big sports fan, you're going to want to see live sports. But slowly, you're seeing these leagues really sort of test um, uh, some of the uh, uh, streaming services. You saw uh, a football game for the first time ever this year was exclu exclusive to Amazon, exclusively streamed. And that went off technically, you know, not bad. Because one of the questions is, you know, for, for a niche sport like cycling, you're not going to get over 10 million people watching, watching that stream. But the, the potential for that for an exclusive NFL game is, uh, is pretty high. And so one of the questions is whether or not people would be able to, you know, the streams would be able to handle that technically. Uh, you, you had a over over last weekend, you had a UFC fight that, you know, got about two million people uh, buying the pay-per-view to stream it via ESPN+. Plus. The amount of problems, um, go to, if you go to Twitter and look it up, the amount of problems people had with their streams and sort of getting authenticated and watching it were, uh, you know, I, I'm not sure how big they were, were in the overall scope of things, but it certainly took uh, took up my Twitter timeline. So it's a, uh, you know, th there's still a lot of issues that leagues, ha the bigger leagues, have with going to um, with going to streaming in ter in terms of just the quality of of the video and the quality of the presentation and whether or not they can attract enough fans to to sort of continue you know, continue the fandom. You know, because sometimes people chase money. And then forget about their fans. So they chase money, they get fewer subscribers, and, and then they're not marketing to anybody, and they have to start from ground zero again. 
Well, and I wonder about this as it pertains to cycling and NBC Sports, uh, as it pertains to the demographic question, which is, you know, we have always known that like the cycling fan d- demographic in the U.S. tends to be older. You know, every year it's sort of we look at it and it's like 55, 56, 57, 59. And so you have an older demographic that maybe is more accustomed to watching things on television than they are to streaming. And now you have this big move where um, the the race is going to be predominantly covered on a streaming service. And I just wonder if um, cycling, some cycling fans are going to be caught out because, you know, they're more, tra- they're more accustomed to traditional television. Yeah. I think so, some cycling, uh, um, um, not necessarily fans, but the, you know, the, the organizations are, that run these, these races and the, and, and the tournaments might, might find that they're going to find less money uh, out there. Cause uh, there's, there's, le- they're going to collect less money for streaming and they're going to find with, uh, you know, channels like NBC sports network going dark, they're going to find less linear channels that are out there. The, uh, the something that's happening right now, like I'm, I'm my, my big story that I'm covering right now, Fred is, you know, the NFL rights, uh, which are up and, and they're going to make, you know, probably $2 billion per network, uh, you know, that money is going to come from somewhere. So like the NFL is fine. MLB is fine. The NBA is fine. All these big sports are fine. It's sort of the ones that aren't getting, uh, bringing huge audiences, sort of like mid-major uh, college conferences. And uh, unfortunately cycling is as well that are just, the, the, those are areas where it's like, Oh, the tortoise France, that's really nice program to have it. It, it, it works for NBC in certain, uh, uh, um, uh, windows, morning windows, especially since it's over in a, in Europe, um, you know, but is it worth, you know, what they had been paying for it? It depends. I mean, the the, the NFL, they're going to have to almost double their rights for what they're paying for the NFL. So that's a, that's a big nut to crack uh, for, for the network. Interesting. Hey, John, what do you know about what's going on with NBC Sports Gold, the current streaming app that uh, NBC Sports has been using? Because I know that a lot of cycling fans have been relying on NBC Sports Gold, not just for the Tour de France, but the other ASO properties like uh, Paris-Roubaix, the Dauphiné, Vuelta España. Um, do you have any sense of what the relationship is going to be between NBC Sports Gold and Peacock going forward? Uh, no, and it's, it's hard to get any kind of answer from that. Um, right now, NBC Sports Gold is uh, is moving forward. But I, uh, a prediction here. I mean, you can see sort of where the winds are changing. You know, that that almost certainly is going to migrate over into, into uh, Peacock Premium at, at some at some point because it makes no sense to have like an NBC Sports streaming service that that's that is separate from uh, from Peacock. So. Uh, I, I would bet that that's what's going to happen with that. Interesting. So there could be a big potential cycling fans that changes are on the horizon for all of us in the way that we um, consume sports. You know, what about the potential for another network to bid on those rights? You know, NBC has the Tour de France rights through the end of 2023. If there's a potential in which it switches most of the programming over to streaming, could there be a potential that the Tour de France could break the television side of the contract if there was another network out there that wanted to show it? Uh, uh, potentially, I suppose. Uh, the the um, I, I couldn't see NBC allowing it to, to, to break. I mean, they, 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 unless they're losing money off of it, and I don't think they are. Um, so, so I think that that would be an unlikely scenario. But I do think that once the rights come up, um, you know, it, you, the thing I would be looking at is like, 
would something like CBS be interested in, in the Tour de France? They are you know, doing the Champions League. They're starting to do a little bit more international programming so that, that they're conditioning sports viewers to, to watch it at certain times, um, which, which fit with the uh, Tour de France. So they could potentially be, be something. I haven't heard anything one way or another on, on that, but you know, the, uh, ESPN and ESPN plus, you know, like it, they're trying to get as much streaming content as possible for, for that service. Something like Amazon, which is global. Uh, you know, so I think that there are, there are certain, um, um, media companies that w- would be interested in those rights, but it's not the, – the Tour de France rights right now are not lucrative enough or, and really don't draw big enough audiences to have – you know, uh, more people are, are focused on the NFL right now than on, than on the Tour de France. And, and so you know, I can see there being a mini bidding war for it, but nobody's really talking about it right now. Interesting. Well, in the cycling space, we do have – a streaming service that has been buying up other race properties, and that's Flow Bikes, which is an arm of Flow Sports. And so, yeah, you wonder if there will be a more mainstream, traditional media entity that's bidding against uh, Flow Sports when those rights come up. Because I know that Flow Sports, I'm, sh- I'm sure, would love to consolidate all their cycling properties with the ASO and Tour de France properties to have to be a one-stop shop. But if they're going up against, you know, a more mainstream larger company like a cbs or an amazon i guess that's when it could get more interesting yeah and the tour is a brand uh frankly that that uh, goes beyond uh hardcore racing fans i mean casual sports fans uh know about the tour de france and and want to see the you know final ride down the champ de Lisee, right and uh and so I, I think that that's something that you will get uh, more mainstream media companies interested in, in picking up those rights if they can get get them affordably Interesting. Well, it's definitely a story we're going to continue following. I thought it was really interesting that in the note put out by uh, NBC's chairman about the decision that, you know, he said big properties like NASCAR and the NHL will go to USA Network, while smaller stuff like dog shows and car shows will go to digital streaming. And I was like, oh, cycling, are we a dog show or are we the NHL? <laughs> it depends on what we're talking about, I, I, I think. But but that's that's the whole point. Car, car shows and dog shows. They're losing linear television, uh, which is where the audiences uh, still come in. So it's a uh, winners and losers of, of that type of uh, that type of move. It's those smaller dog shows and car shows that certainly are the losers out of this deal. Uh, well, John, if you ask me, we are much closer to NASCAR than a dog show. But I'm sure if you ask the mainstream sports fan, they'd probably be like Tour de France. Yeah, they, they have one of those for dogs, right? For for the general schedule, it's um, you know, it it doesn't resonate yet. Was that diplomatic enough for that you, was a di- That was very diplomatic. I really appreciate it. All the cycling <laughs> fans out there, no one's going to tweet mean things at you. No one's – be nice to John Arand on Twitter. He's very good Twitter follow. So cycling fans, do not do not tweet at John. We're better than dog shows. <laughs> <laughs> well, John Arand is a reporter with Sports Business Journal, Sports Business Daily, former colleague of mine at those two publications. John, you have been an excellent guest on the Vel News podcast, and we would love to have you back. Consider this an open-door policy. You can come back whenever you would like. Oh, anytime, Fred. It's always great to reconnect with you, man. 